0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Christian Christensen, Associate Professor in the History of Ideas at Aarhus University, Denmark. His book, Progressive Business and Intellectual History of the Role of Business in American Society, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Christensen offers a compelling history of the idea of a gentler capitalism, or of the soulful self-regulating corporation that can flourish economically while doing social good. The idea of market reformism against a pure laissez-faire has been an important concept in three distinct periods of U.S. history. In the late 19th century, the nation experienced the first economic transformation toward large-scale industrial capitalism, engendering paternalistic market reformism, to alleviate the harshest elements of laissez-faire. The second period of change was the decades of the New Deal in which political reformism took hold. Advocates for self-regulation promoted a managerial market reformism in which professional managers were to play a key role in negotiating the needs of the corporation and multiple stakeholders. The third period is the most recent era of globalization in which neoliberal ascendancy has been met by a complementary entrepreneurial market reformism in which capitalism is promoted as democratic, cool, revolutionary and egalitarian. All forms of self regulation, as a third way that rejects both pure capitalism and state intervention, has been met with criticism. Some have held to the idea that the business of business is to maximize shareholder profits, not social engineering. Others, advocating for political reform, are skeptical of business acting against its own best interests and call for the countervailing power of government. Christensen has provided a valuable roadmap for understanding the claims of corporate social responsibility in a neoliberal age. Here is my conversation with Christian Christensen. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Christian Christensen. Christian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book does a lot of work in illuminating the relationship between the liberal times of aggressive global capitalism that we're living in and the humanistic message sent out by corporate America. But first, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Progressive Business.
1: So... My name is Christian Rudolf and I'm I'm from Denmark, uh, and I have a a background in intellectual history. And I think a long time ago, uh, me and another a colleague uh, working here, um, and I was actually a graduate student then, I think, um, and he was an associate professor. And he he was asked to write something about whether what we see today is a kind of Capitalism, which is becoming more humane, more socially responsible. And we were to write a kind of small essay on that. And that kind of got my thoughts going. And um, later on, it turned into a PhD um, project. And um, then I started working on that. And I got lucky that I could try to edit this PhD project quite a lot and, and and eventually turned it into to this book called Progressive Business.
0: What is progressive business and what is its uh,
1: root? So progressive business is an analytical term that I use to try to capture uh, some tendencies that I think we see today and which are really, really widespread. And this um, progressive business idea is basically... That businesses are these uh, moral uh, institutions, that they have particular kinds of social purposes, social responsibilities, and that they're able to kind of self-reform, self-regulate, and that they're able to do a lot of good kind of social things, not just have economic purposes, but that they will be able to do something which is a little bit better in, in, in relation to the environment or to the people they employ. And I think this is a a trend or kind of discourse, the discourse of the moral cooperation. I think it's extremely widespread today, Um, not only in the US, also in Europe, uh, also in Denmark, and also at a global level, a kind of global institutional level. If you, for example, look at ways in which the United Nations, part of the United Nations, like the United Nations Development Program, how they talk about how we're going to solve some of the major problems in our world in relation to climate change, to poverty, etc. They want to have uh, businesses playing a major role in creating a transition towards a greener, uh, richer, etc. future. And so if I can also return a little bit to the, to the question you gave me first, how did I come up with this idea? And um, what I started thinking about was, have we seen these kinds of ideas about the moral business? Have we seen these ideas before? Because in some of the literature that I think we find today on, for example, the concept of corporate social responsibility – some of this literature is often written by people who see themselves as being kind of part of this movement and they're trying to make these businesses like less profit-oriented or trying to persuade them that they can make profits and do good at the same time. So it, it comes as a kind of teleological kind of history. They see themselves in the middle of this Beginning of a revolution, silent kind of revolution, maybe taking place, and we're we're moving towards a more kind of moral, socially responsible capitalism, uh, or that's what they're hoping for. So I just now I'm really giving you a really long answer to this, but I just started wondering whether we've seen these ideas before. So that's kind of where the where the intellectual historian, the historian, tries to intervene and. In, in the debate and intervene in the understandings we have of this phenomena.
0: Now you you're doing a history of ideas, and you start back in the uh, 1870s, the late 19th century, and and yeah. what was going on there? Industrial uh, Industrial America was emerging. It was became very aggressive sort of industrial capitalism, and this is when we begin to see the rumblings of people saying, "Wait a minute, we have some sort of." A moral concern here and how we're doing this. So talk about that period in terms of what was happening um, that got the attention of people and what kinds of responses were given to laissez-faire.
1: Hmm. Well, I think, I think a, a lot of things were happening and they were happening really, really fast. And the United States um, has been described as this industrial latecomer, but then all of a sudden it exploded and it, it did so really fast. And a lot of different things happened. You had a lot of of, of poor people, you had unemployed people, you had a lot of problems. Uh, A lot of the problems that we find uh, associated with uh, what you would call like modern industrial capitalism. And in response to all these problems, on the one hand, I think you can see the rise of labor unions, and they're trying to protect workers, they're trying to say that uh, we need to get rid of capitalism, or we need to reform it, or we need to uh, make some rules about uh, the length of the working day, or get rid of child uh, labor, etc. All these different agendas uh, were on the table. And you also had a laissez-faire liberalism position, the kind of survival of the fittest doctrine saying, well, we don't want to interfere in the free market, you know, just don't interfere in the system of, of free property. Uh, everything will work out for the best if we don't try to interfere with this. And then I just started seeing that this position, which is a kind of uh, position which says in a way, well, we want to have kind of free markets, but then we have, want to have a kind of social ethic of, of, of the employers. Uh so um I started seeing how people were starting to address business people and say for example uh, you cannot just go around and say what you do you do because of the laws of the market um it's simply not a good way of justifying your actions by saying well it's all about supply and demand this is uh, so this is uh, the reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing this is the reason why I do not want to take extra care of employers etc so I think one of one part of this was a kind of often a Christian re- response saying well there's a as, as, as one of the figures that I examine a little bit in my in my book Washington Gladden what he says is well uh, dear employers just don't talk about Justifying your actions by referring to the economic laws, he says, there's a higher law, the law of Christianity. So you need to show that you can actually uh, be a, a good human being towards uh, the ones you are employing. So we have this kind of rise of the of the of this moralized moralizing discourse. Um, I don't know if it's uh, that's the proper expression, but you know that you know. That's what I think, at least. Yes. Well,
0: Wes, what the uh, one of the things that you talk about is that this this market reformism that you describe comes up whenever there is a real critique of the free market. It's sort of a defensive strategy, yeah. and you talk about this early period between 1870 and 1900. Uh, in the context of laissez-faire, laissez-faire is being questioned. People are asking, is this the kind of society we want to live in with people Mm -hmm. being hurt by the system? And you have the rise of this paternalistic market uh, reformism. And one of the examples you talk about, you do talk about Gladden, which is in the social gospel and what came out of that, but you also talk about uh, the company town of Putman and as an example of this paternalistic market reformism. Talk a little bit about that for the audience.
1: Well, I think uh, I one of the things which was, was really interesting about this was uh, I think as, as as many would know and 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 probably know in in, in detail um, that one of the things we know about this place is is that there was this this uh, big big strike and it was kind of a major event. But I tried to look at it from the point of view of um, The economist Richard Eli, who who went there and he went to study it, and he went to see this factory town, and he was interested in the idea of people saying that this would be a kind of new model for industrial capitalism, that you would have better housing available uh, for people there, that they could kind of live there, and, and there would be a lot of different things available for them. So he was asking the question of of, uh, of whether that this would be kind of a way forward for industrial capitalism, and and he was specifically also kind of referring to this idea that that well, if it can be shown that um, it pays handsomely for the businessman to to uh, to be better towards the employees, then this system will kind of work, which is. Very funny in itself, because that becomes kind of the ethics pace argument, which we find again and again much later on and very much today. But kind of re- returning to, to Eli, you know, his, his conclusion is that this becomes this kind of paternalistic nightmare. <laughs> and the people don't have any real freedom. They have to rent everything. They don't really have uh, their own property. So it's also a kind of property critique. And an um, equality uh, critique uh, directed against this system, which is, which is, it's not, and that's the funny thing, it's not like an example just of laissez faire. It's kind of seems to be built on an idea, okay, we know there's a lot of uprisings, there's a lot of strikes, there's a lot of angry workers. Let's try to form a kind of compromise in some way, but we'll, we'll still. Really have the steady hand, uh, the control of businesses, the control of property. But we'll try to give them something um, without kind of giving more power to labor unions or the state. And we're trying this kind of model
0: now. This the Putman town was all encompassing. The workers worked in the factory. They lived on the uh, on the property of the company. They shopped in the stores. They, they, there, there were supposed to be churches there. Everything was all encompassing. So they, everybody lived under the purview or the, the view of the, of the employer. So this is what you're talking about, this paternalism, which of course they had no, they couldn't buy their homes. There was no vote. There was no democracy. The company determined basically everything about their lives. They were taken care of in a certain sense, but there was really no freedom. And I guess this is this was the critique that Eli was taking up yeah. uh, against, of course, there's William Graham Summer that you talk about what what his take was, the opposite uh, take. Talk about sure. Summer a little
1: bit. Well, he, well he's kind of he, he's fascinating in his own way. And I uh, I, I read a. Uh, about him one place, I think by a uh, historian called Jeffrey Sklansky that he referred to him as the, the, the fighting priest of organized capital. I think, Uh, I think that was uh, the, the quote I got uh, from, from um, Sklansky. So, so he was, you know, this kind of, he had this really kind of tough, um, laissez-faire liberalist position and he just, he just, took that position to its kind of um very um to the extreme i kind of took it through all its kind of logical steps and 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 tried to to explain why you wouldn't run around trying to help people and you know you should only teach them to be able to help themselves um, etc so he's he was he was offering a kind of critique of, of of all these do-gooders <laughs> and 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 all these early progressives. And he's a funny figure because at the same time he was uh so he was part of this early American sociological tradition. So he actually wanted to have a society which was kind of based on knowledge about how society actually works. But in contrast to some of those progressives he did not want to see a new strong state or anything like that emerge. He wanted a this kind of free market society, so he was, so he was in a way, I think, embodying the third kind of another position, which is which is to say, leave it all to the market. And if I can just add there, I think what I really try there's a kind of. Uh, you know, all books seems to have a plot. <laughs> and there's also a, a, like a plot in this book that I might reveal now to the reader. And then hopefully the reader might consider reading it anyway. But the plot is like that even what, you know, when we go back to this part of the history, or uh, if we go into the mid-20th century, or the late 20th, early 21st century, there's always like three positions battling against one another. And one is, you know, the kind of laissez-faire liberal or later to refer to as neoliberal view, saying, you know, leave it to the free market. The other position is a kind of leftist position, which will more, you know, say, give more power to the state, welfare state, labor unions, etc. And then I'm trying to show that there's this interesting middle position, which is in a way saying, yes, uh, we need free markets, but in combination with this moral, moral social responsibility, and that's the market reformers, that's the progressive business people. So
0: up to, up to 1930, what you're, you show is that um, this uh, laissez-faire and the, uh, a progressive re- market reform ethic are kind of fighting it out, and then mm. you have the, we have the Great Depression, and political reform gains the upper hand. Yeah. Laissez-faire kind of falls out of favor, and political reform becomes sort of the vehicle for protecting social interests. Yeah. Okay. So, and and in, in, in that, you show, talk about um, that are, uh, corporations. The way they respond is they they respond by saying, "Yes, we are we're social organizations, and we have responsibility to multiple stakeholders, not just." Uh, shareholders, but we have responsibility to the worker, we have responsibility to our customers, we have responsibility to all civil society, I think you would say. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And you call this managerial market reformism, which is another attempt to try to push back this political reformism that has kind of really risen and and come to its own. Talk about that a little bit. That's a very interesting period of time.
1: I think it is. I think it's it's, uh, it reveals that the social legitimacy of free market capitalism is in, is in a period of crisis. And some of the people who are writing from the perspective of business and management consultancy especially, they're trying to show what might be the kind of greater social purpose of businesses and of capitalism. And the people I refer to are people like Elton Mayo, it's uh, Peter Drucker, it's uh, Chester Barnard. And in each of their different ways, they're trying to say, well, businesses, they're not just about making profits. They are in it for the social purposes. Um, They need to take account of different groups in society, as you say, the different stakeholders. Again, briefly, kind of, mentioned here I think it needs to be mentioned that um today people associated this they will associate this stakeholder concept which is something which appears in the I think early nineteen eighties. But it's extremely clear I think to me that that it, it's it is actually what they're thinking about at this point of time, which is which is late thirties, forties, fifties. So they're really trying to to create kind of a new soul for the for the corporation, and they're really trying to convince everyone that that these free market business enterprises that they're they're in it for for the best of all people, um, and, and and at the same time they're they're really much n- trying to distance themselves from like laissez-faire economics. So, for example, they would be very much against. The idea of, 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 of you know, economic man—that's a kind of major theme for them. Like they don't like the idea of economic man, this self-interested individual that you would find in someone like Sumner and that you will find in some parts of economics. They're saying that we're social individuals; we need to connect with one another. Mayo is saying uh, all of civilization is in crisis. We need to rebuild it, and the way we need to do it is to have this. Um, the corporation being a new kind of social institution, basically.
0: Mayo also talked about, uh, was kind of the founder, I think, if you the know, founder, but a proponent of industrial psychology, mm-hmm. which uh, again emphasized, you know, the worker in his workplace, the connection between him and other workers and management and the company, and uh, really worked on that, which came under. Under critique, you show how it came under critique of like William White's uh, organizational man in 1956 in Mm -hmm. which he said this really amounts to managers having the job of just really controlling everybody in the workplace. It's people who don't produce anything. They're people who just their job is to control everybody else's production and everybody else's attitude. Yeah. So. And, and that kind of reminded me of something else, Remind me of the critique that was put forward by Herbert Marcuse, who sit in One Dimensional Man, and we talked about the consumer becomes a commodity himself. This is where the worker becomes another, you know, commodity.
1: Yeah. So
0: talk about that. I think that that's all very interesting about the critique about managerial reformism.
1: Yeah, and... and um it is it is really interesting, and uh, it's a lot of fascinating books and a lot of fascinating people who are kind of taking on this subject of this new managerial person. And you mentioned White, uh, and his book is just like it's brilliant from a rhetorical point of view. And I would really encourage people to look at it. But it's it's just it's so fun. Uh, and one place, for example, he says, which I think is very telling for this period, he says that. Um, the the um, the old manager he wanted your sweat, and he's referring back to the days of, of Frederick Taylor and scientific management, etc. And this scientific management was then the next big kind of managerial ideology was human relations. So Drucker says the new man wants your soul, <laughs> and it's kind of very dramatic, uh, but it kind of it's one expression of of how people. I think also from a kind of right or business uh, perspective are trying to critique this new idea of these individuals who should belong to the organization. And then you see people like from writing from the left, who are also critiquing this idea of the close bond between individual and an organization. Um, White again he 's so funny in in the in the end of his book he has an appendix where he guides the reader for how you can cheat these new personality tests that that the organizations demand from you but I think it's 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 also uh fair also to 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 remember that it's it's not only like this idea of of of, of people and there's the the kind of um mental states and, and, and their feelings, emotions, and how all of that can kind of be manipulated, etc cetera, by, by the manager. Uh, there's also a critique coming from someone like Reinhard Bendix, the sociologist, and his critique is also saying that what Mayu and the others really want is a society where you don't have the freedom to be really in conflict with one another. So they also... Really, really skeptical of, of how this whole idea of what I call managerialist uh, market reformism, how they're trying to show the world, you know, we have these better, morally responsible corporations, and people like Bendix are trying to show, yes, you're 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 trying to kind of take labor unions out of the equation.
0: Right. They're saying uh, that conflict in uh, in capitalism with an engagement with capitalism is a good thing. And uh it's the whole idea also of Galbraith who came up with this uh when he talks about countervailing power that you've got to have countervailing power to control you can't just let them take it all.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: And uh then you've got Milton Friedman who is also uh, looking at this and saying this so- idea of social responsibility is just bogus. It's just business doesn't have a social responsibility, it has a profitability responsibility.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think, I think, I think like Friedman's writings on this shows many different things. I think one of the things it shows is that it, it brings testimony to the fact that these ideas about the soulful corporation, as it was often called, or social responsibility of corporations, as they started talking about all the moral cooperation, that these ideas were taken very, very seriously. Uh, so it, sh- it shows that they were important at this time, and they were taken seriously both by people from the right, like Friedman, who would say, you know, that the business of business is business. And so he was out against this idea.
0: This is when I see the re- the right and the left. Extreme right and left actually almost saying the same thing. They're both saying the business of business is profits. Yeah, it's interesting that they're both saying, but they have different solutions to what to what that means. Freeman would say, "Just let it go; it's the good thing." And the left would say, "That's the problem."
1: Yeah, it 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 is really interesting. There's a kind of again this this uh, this uh, always three positions kind of dancing around each other and and now we see that that those on the right and those on the left are actually in some ways sharing a critique of this i uh, phenomenon of the soulful corporation and um, one thing you know they're, they're discussing is what are corporations actually doing are they actually just in it for the profits and uh, some people um, on, on the right and some people on the left are trying to say that they're they're in it for the profits. And then Friedman is adding the kind of normative idea and saying that, oh, they should also be in it for the profits. And people on the left are trying, some on the left are trying to say, yes, we should try to invent another kind of system. And then we have, again, we have those kind of market reformers, progressive business people early on trying to show the world, well, we're not just in it for the profits. We're actually serious when we're talking about our social responsibility. So then, again, you have the kind of uh, those conflicts between those three positions.
0: Okay. Then you you get to the period of 1970, 2000, which is, you know, the rise of the globalization. And you talk about entrepreneurial market reformism, which there's a valoration of the market and the market becomes a way we exercise freedom, democracy, consumer sovereignty, individual self-actualization, the market begins to sort of eat up. It looks, what you're saying, you say it, uh, politics. Yeah. The things that politics was to do, freedom, democracy, sovereignty, actual self-actualization becomes the job of the market to do yeah which i thought i thought was and, and and the other thing is this idea that there is no alternative to capitalism talk about that so i think that was very interesting yeah, section okay.
1: so i so I, I think you know there's you know there's been a a, a tendency uh, to that that we tend to agree you know that around somewhere in the 70s there's there's this big change and you start having this massive Critique of 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 the welfare state, and you see a shift towards neoliberalism, etc. So I think what I tried to do in the book was try to see, okay, how does this moral discourse around the social socially responsible corporation, how does it change in that kind of new environment where uh, free markets are getting more and more kind of celebrated? And we see a critique uh against you know of the state and we see a decline in the interest in labor unions, all these different things we see from the seventies and and onwards and I think that this idea of the kind of moral cooperation discourse it becomes more radical in a way because it wants to be um it wants to be a place for for freedom and for equality. It want to, wants to embrace, like, racial equality. It wants to free up um, ways in which homosexuals can exist and, and be in this society. And here, again, I'm kind of also relying on a similar narrative in the French case by these French sociologists, Boltanski and Chiapello, and they're trying to show how this kind of cultural critique against um Capitalism, etc., in the late sixties, and how this kind of cultural critique also becomes part of this new DNA of, of this new moral discourse. So, and this new this new way of, of, of thinking about business is, you know, business will will set you free. It will provide more freedom. It doesn't care about your skin color. It doesn't care about your sexuality. It can embrace like multiculturalism. It can it can it can really kind of of kind of incorporate all those kind of cultural critiques. So, so
0: it's capitalism sort of co-ops the politics of difference and the politics of mm-hmm. recognition. And what came to mind right away is with feminism, uh, that or commercial back in the 70s, it was the Virginia Slims commercial, which is about it's a cigarette commercial, which shows this woman is very independent and she's smoking. And then you've got the United Colors of Bennington, which is you know, that shows uh, people from different races all kind of together and happy. And so the, you see it in the advertisements. Yeah. This idea that uh, business is um, multicultural and open. It's very progressive in terms of social democracy. Um, but what's the problem with this?
1: Well, the, pl- the you know, the problem is that um, at least according to the critics if i can put it, if i can put it that way i think we've seen you know we've seen critics of this discourse we've seen them today and i think uh i think we can also learn something from the historical critiques of this discourse and again we see a critique coming from the right uh and we also see a critique coming from from the left and the left um has over the years made several kinds of complaints against this discourse of, of moral capitalism. So one of them is, you know, um, what can, you might have one particular corporation, which is particularly social responsible or wants to do something, especially nice for it's the ones, uh, that, that corporation is, um, is, is, um, employing. But, uh, there's a lot of things that corporations can't do they can't you know provide social and economic rights for a lot of people. they can't make sure that we have something like labor unions, which will also be this kind of counterbalancing power uh, so there's this whole idea about what kind of institutions do we have in our society and the role of balance between those different institutions and you know when we're strengthening the institution of the corporation, and we're believing that the corporation can provide for us, etc. We might also be weakening some of the other institutions, and okay. I think you can. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot of examples of this. Like um, one book, which which came out uh, quite some years ago now, was by uh, Robert Reich, and he wrote about super capitalism, and he also takes up this idea about. Uh, social responsibility of corporations and he his critique is something like, okay, now every now and then a politician will step up and then they will say, okay, this company is, is doing particularly good, that other company is, is not doing so good in terms of their social responsibility, but we don't need to pass on the right kinds of laws and regulations, etc. Uh, because because these these corporations will have this moral responsibility. So that's one of the Problems that he's pointing at, and I think that particular way of, of, of 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 trying to address the problem of so-called, of this kind of moralistic discourse of corporations and capitalism is is a critique that I can see also longer back in history. Uh, so one thing again is this institutional balance in our societies. What happens when people start believing that that business will solve? Uh, a lot of problems, and again, I must stress that that if we also look at this into a more kind of global context, today there's just so many examples of, um, for example, the la- one example would be um, the latest, uh, I think, COP21 meeting. Uh, one of the big issues in, of that meeting, you know, was that it would be business which would be solving, you know, climate problems. So I think. This is just a really, really strong discourse, and we need to remind ourselves of um, how different institutions in our society might also be really important in, in terms of solving problems.
0: Because under this uh, Rubik's, the market becomes society. It's, it's the whole of society and politics. It does everything. And the most frightening thing that you talked about was the market becomes the moral guide. It sets what the market says is moral is what is moral, which really has incredible implications for things like human rights and workers' rights, you know. And do we really want uh, that or do we need countervailing? And you talk about this countervailing power of government, civil society, labor, uh, you know, all kinds of civic organizations that can push and also be part of that discourse. Instead of just the market determining our values, yeah. this is really. I think that this is really like the uh, market totalitarianism.
1: Yeah,
0: that's, that's yeah. what came to mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I I I, I, I agree, and I, you know I think it's something to be to be really concerned about, and, and really to to be looking at. Um, one of you know this 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 book is is written from the perspective of someone doing intellectual history, a history of ideas. Uh, I'm trying to bridge a gap uh, between like historical sociology and a history of ideas perspective. But I think what what one of the results has also been to see that these corporations, uh, they kind of operate in the fields of many different kinds of, of actors. Uh, you mentioned some of these just before, and we need to also Always be aware of the kind of context that they appear in, and we need to be aware of how different organizations are and and actors are are making particular kinds of of um, influences um, on this system as a whole. Um, but but um, there's you know there's certainly lots to be said about some good things also happening in that area. I think. The United Nations have tried to move some corporations in a direction where they would be better at respecting human rights. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things to say which might be good about corporations which are better at respecting human rights than corporations who are not good at respecting human rights. But all this requires much more than just leaving it to individual market actors. All that requires... Different kinds of uh, politics and, and legal systems, etc. Um, so, so that's kind of the one take-home message I'm trying to make in the, in the in the book. You know that there might actually be some ways in which some corporations are improving their labor standards, environmental standards, human rights standards. But we just need to take a kind of three sixty-degree overview of this whole situation and remind ourselves of all the other. Important institutions in society before we fall into the kind of uh, conscious capitalism idea that that um, some people have been promoting. But
0: aren't so, some of those changes that corporations have taken on, like child labor, you know, third world uh, working conditions, uh, really happen when consumers bring it to the you know bring it to their attention and say, "We know what you're doing." And so there's this idea rattling there about the business case for vir- virtue, mm. right? Yeah. That that yeah. you you do well by doing good. So yeah. is business amor- amoral? They they just do what's going to make them money, and if they're getting pushback from consumers regarding how their products are being produced, they're going to change that. Uh, is it so? Is it really? And so when they say, well, we're, we're being socially responsible and making these changes," or is it really just an inter, estru, instrumental ethic, not a true moral stance, but instrumental, a smokescreen to cover up what their what their real uh, agenda is?
1: Yeah, um, I, I think to a large degree, it's 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 it's, it's instrumental. And, and and they respond to also how consumers uh, um, react to all these different things. Again, this is something which perhaps, you know, requires other kinds of, of research methods and other kinds of studies to really show how corporations, how they really function and how they really work. And this is something that I've, I've learned is a really, like, fascinating field in sociology and, and anthropology also, and a lot of different... Uh, views on, on this. Um, but I think uh, for sure there's been lots of examples where you can see that corporations are only responding to some of these problems because they're being pressured into it by consumers or by like um, critical, like corporate watch and some of those organizations who are kind of just watching, uh, being kind of watch uh, watching out for for what corporations are, are actually doing, uh, mm-hmm. so I think of course there's also there's always this kind of bottom line perspective in businesses, but there's also you know these studies which will show that um, people in businesses you, I mean they won't just all of them run around thinking about profits all of the time. they'll have lots of different ideas and you'll have people in a business working with like corporate social responsibility. And they'll think they're actually doing something and they're actually pushing their particular business in a, another direction. So I think there's a complexity to, to that as well from kind of inside corporation perspective that you, that you need to be aware of also. I think.
0: There's also another thing that's happening at the same time here in the late 20th century. And you, you note uh, Steve Covey, the popularizer of sort of basically personal business ethics. The idea that each individual person who's working within a corporation uh, has to exercise their personal business ethic to make everything better and sort of moves it away from the a corporate structural responsibility to the again the individual being the carrier of the ethic. Talk about how how that's being negotiated.
1: Uh, I think. I think that whole uh, case and that whole aspect is is extremely interesting. And I think a lot of people would kind of say that for a long time there was this building up of organizational structures and we have kind of a more organized kind of capitalism, um, the managerial capitalism from like 30s until 70s. And then there was a shift towards something with more precarious work conditions more temporary work and then this really strong emphasis upon the individual and individual self-responsibilities and this is something that you see really really strongly in Kaui and and his message has just been brought out to a lot of businesses and it's it's really this idea you know that you are just this self-reliant individual and you know you should just be able to take care of yourself and if you fail it's because somehow you failed to change your habits and i think this whole discourse fits really nicely into what people would say is the rise of neoliberalism focus on individuals and their own responsibilities um i think i mentioned a place in the book that um bill clinton invited Cowie uh, to come, uh, and then he went out one day and then he said oh if if every American just could just do what Cowie suggests, then we would every, everyone would just be so much more productive um, but I think it's it 's really telling for for this kind of new discourse of a new kind of capitalism breaking away from the structural organized capitalism into a new discourse." Um, where I've also seen like business people saying uh, about employees that you know you are not just an employee; you're your own kind of company. You need to invest in yourself. You need to constantly develop yourself. We don't owe you any kind of security. You you, you have to think about yourself as a as an individual company. And I think that there this, this seems to be so many links then between the rise of a new kind of neoliberalism uh, and the rise of a new kind of discourse around the individual and the individual as a, as a kind of personal company with a, a human capital.
0: Right. And so what you see is you see the breakdown of any kind of loyalty that the, a company might have to its employees or employees to companies. So you, you have lots of people changing jobs a lot. And yeah. besides management gurus who are trying to reinvent the corporation into this flexible sort of responsive Uh, entrepreneurial, always entrepreneurial sort of organization, you've got uh, executive coaching, which has taken off tremendously during this period. Yeah. So that, you know, executives are coached to be, you know, more effective and uh, entrepreneurial and creative and all that, those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think, I think some people would, 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 you know, tend to agree and, 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 and think that we actually went from having more kind of long-term working relationships and more security, etc. Then we got this more flexible kind of capitalism and it was basically sold as a new kind of freedom. <laughs> and when we should all be excited about creativity and creative destruction and organizations being turned up and down uh, all of the time and, 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 you know, running from one job to another and always being involved in all these different projects.
0: Yeah, the uh, thing that was the most disturbing is when you see the, the co-optation of the word revolution, that, you hmm. know, capitalism is revolutionary. There's a lot of co-optation of what that actually means. and And then also thinking of capitalism as being cool, it's you know it's hip, it's cool, it's creative it's uh it's gonna deliver all these wonderful things to everybody
1: yeah yeah, and I think that that really becomes a part of this uh this new discourse around uh, capitalism that it that it's that it's able to to fulfill all these different kinds of promises and of course one example uh that I also mentioned in the book is 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 this um Former McKinsey consultant Tom Peters, and he really writes about you know the big business revolution and 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 how you need to to just uh, be in search of excellence all of the time, and you really just need to revolutionize and turn everything around all of the time, and and um, that becomes part I think of a new ethos, a new a new a new spirit of capitalism in a way, which is uh, which is very Dissimilar to the one you you found in in at the area when um, or era when someone like Drocker and Mayo and, and these people were writing, they they had there was enough no rhetoric or which resembled this we see much later.
0: Now, um, how how is this extending uh, extending beyond? You know, the, your book deals mostly with uh, American thought. Of how we see, that, but you do talk about it at, towards the end about this a, a global system. And you talk about the, book, uh, the critique, of the idea of this total capitalism or the idea of empire, which is a global power, that there's not, we don't have the um, laws or the structures, international laws and structures or institutions to really control how these mm-hmm. corporations are moving across borders and uh, what they're doing.
1: Well, I think, I think that, you know, that was what was one critique. And it's, it's, in a way, it's been a a strong narrative about globalization and, and this era of globalization that we live in. That we've uh, been hearing this narrative again and again about how states are weakened. They have a kind of less, Manure space, for what they can do in terms of uh, social benefits, in terms of their welfare systems, etc. And I think there's a, a real danger, in a way, that it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And 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 when we kind of all of us start believing that, you know, because of globalization, states are weakened, uh, then we might also start insisting that. States do not have to be so much weakened and we also see in some other areas that they're certainly not weakened so I think I think from from that perspective um, one also needs to be critical around this discourse which is saying that now today we have global capitalism and and nation states are just kind of bound to race towards the bottom in terms of their social uh, welfare um, uh, in terms of their labor standards, environmental standards, etc., and try to kind of think about how that situation in a way can can be changed or how countries can unite uh, or governments can unite in some kind of some efforts to try not to race towards the, the bottom in, in, in social and environmental terms.
0: There's also, yeah, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. When you're talking about uh, this emphasis on the individual, sort of each individual is an entrepreneur. Individual is a their own sort of company. They're self-employed. Everybody's self-employed. Um, what happens with that also is when there is corporate uh, bad behavior on the part of corporations, uh, the what happens? In I see this in the media. It is we we zero in on an individual. He was the bad actor, okay? Mm. And and so uh, that way we kind of leave the whole organization off the hook by saying, well, it was just this one bad guy. You know, if everybody was doing what the right thing, then we'd have this problem. So there's also this abstract, there's also what I see in all this discourse that you're talking about, an abstraction between um, the corporation and capitalism becomes sort of an abstracted thing. And the the problem that I'm seeing here is that uh, corporations have individuals in them who are acting not always in the best interest of the the corporation or their employer because they have their own prejudices, their own personal agendas, their own uh, short-term personal benefits that they're trying to get. So it's not, so it's, what I'm trying to say, it doesn't seem like it's just the individual is always subject to the structure and but the structures also constraining the individual, so it's very sort of interdependent, right? Yeah. B- between yeah. uh, it, it's instead of talking, it's really h- easy to talk about corporations or capitalism as this abstract thing, but there's all these yeah. people with their different agendas and ideas and desires that are working within it.
1: Yeah yeah, and I, th- I think I think it's something that we we really need to take into into consideration. And I think again, some of the sociological studies, some of the anthropological studies, uh, they're really trying to kind of open that kind of black box of the corporation because we tend to have this kind of really kind of narrow uh, narrow minded idea about how it is and how it works. And I actually think that, you know, trying to be more informed about how it really works also would help us kind of understand what what to do with it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, again, uh, I just, you know, can't, you know, stress enough how, how that aspect of also looking the corporation into a larger society, into a larger context of all different kind of institutions that kind of holistic view in a way is is important to to understand it um, and its workings. Now, but that, I think you're perfectly right that that's a that's an important perspective.
0: And also uh, part of the what's happened here with the corporation sort of becoming or capitalism becoming all encompassing and taking in all you know the, the politics and the and the morality and everything is people's disengagement from uh, politics and and you know civil society uh, people are people used to belong to multiple they had an employer but they belonged to multiple other organizations that sort of mm. balanced it out but as those are being taken in uh individuals have fewer uh places where different ideas were going to be expressed not necessarily the idea of the manager mm.
1: Uh, I think I think that uh, that I th- again I think you know that is a that I, that is a really really relevant concern. Um, uh, there's been these studies showing how how people are are getting more lonely or how they're bowling alone, as it was said once, opting out of civil society, opting out of different kinds of institutions, and now not in all sectors of the economy, obviously, but in some sectors we see these companies. Uh, I've seen some examples in, in Denmark as well, where they will be a place where you can come and sometimes they will take care of, of, of your child and they will offer you people that you can go exercise with and uh, you can go running and there will be some social arrangements. And of course, you will also be working with all these people. So so in a way, and again, this, I think we shouldn't get the idea that this is kind of representative for all of the economy b- because this is kind of the high layered part of the economy because this is definitely not the case for all people, but, but it, it still kind of contributes to this, to this kind of society, I think, where we, you know, we'll we live in each our different kind of silos uh, and the corporation will be one place where you can go and then you can, then you can just get all and, and, you know, and then you'll think, oh, the government is not doing something for the environment, but, at our corporation, we're kind of collecting a little bit of money and then we'll donate them ourselves and we'll do something. So I think the, the whole institution of the corporation and how it changes historically really shows that today, especially we have so many kind of gray area zones between, you know, when, what, what, uh, why on earth is a corporation doing those kinds of things? So and, and yeah. What about
0: so, the, what about the idea that, you know, the, the uh, government, uh, because of constraints of, of political constraints has actually pushed, you know, a lot of these social issues, concerns onto the corporation. You take care of the childcare stuff. You do that. You take care of the health, you take care of the health welfare aspect of human, because we, the government is, you know, is not for a lot of political reasons, not taking it on. Um, that, so she would be asking for corporations to do more, or should we be asking the government to do more? Or some other institutions to do more?
1: Well, I I think when I when I look back uh at these uh various critics of the idea of the kind of all encompassing corporations which will be doing all these things, uh you know that they had a point that uh which was something like that we need to take, try in each country to try to make some systems work, which will take care of everybody's children and will take care of, you know, that everyone will get some kind of a decent health care. And that requires other institutions than the company. And I don't know if I come from this because of my kind of Scandinavian Danish background, then I'm inclined to think, yes, the government should should take care of it. Um Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Christian, you have been very generous with your time, and it's really an interesting book. I do have one more question. Where do you go from here?
1: Well, uh, right now I'm trying to look at um, inequality uh, is my new kind of major theme, uh, inequality, and looking into what could be called a kind of intellectual history of inequality, so how have we thought about inequality uh in different periods of of time and connecting this to to my earlier project here i'm I'm trying to look at what happens when we get this idea that you know businesses will be involved in combating poverty Uh, that's actually a central part i think of this united nations uh um setting that i talked about before right that that corporations and businesses should be involved in in trying to get rid of poverty in the in 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 poor countries et cetera, and so I'm trying to see okay if if they are supposed to be those who are at the forefront of getting less poverty and getting a bit more equality, what happens with different ways that we've normally thought about trying to get less equal, inequality in the world such as uh, providing people with more social and economic rights. So I'm trying to trying to see this not so much just in an American context, but a more kind of a, a global level and in relation to United Nations that this progressive business, uh, I've been talking about what happens when it seems to become so influential and strong a discourse at a kind of global level. Uh, so for example, how does it relate to uh, the fact that most countries want to donate less foreign aid to poor countries, like the saying, "This you know, the state just handing out people to money, uh, or sorry, just handing out money to poor people doesn't work." We always, you, instead, you need to have them embracing um, and becoming an entrepreneurial, etc. So I'm trying to look into those many aspects of. Inequality, progressive business in a more um, global setting this time.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Christian, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It will be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.